doing stuff with them over there. So we're going to be in the Gospels this morning, and I've asked Mr. Kenny if he would say just a quick word of prayer before we dive into our Bible study. Two with us. So uh, we've been studying really the whole Bible, kind of our overview here is the idea of the class, and we just finished up the Old Testament, and just finished up the Old Testament. Last week we dove into the Gospels, and somebody asked me for a print off of the little graphic that we showed. It's just got the Bibles broken down by different types. I'll put this in the back as well, along with our handout from last week, if you would like that. But we started introducing really all of the Gospels, and I, I rewrote some of the slides because I noticed when I pulled them up last week, they were so dang small you couldn't hardly see them. But just our, our main points was just uh, keeping in mind, you know, that it's four different accounts of Jesus written to kind of four different intended audiences. And so the, uh, the writers, and we, we believe all of the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Of course, we talked about that last week as well. But each of the writers sort of tailors it to their different audience. So there's a little bit of differences when we read across them, different things that are emphasized, different points that are made, different perspectives on Jesus. And we talked about how math, the, the four authors, Matthew was the tax collector, one of the twelve called by Jesus. Mark, sometimes called probably the same John Mark as he's sometimes called in Acts, who would have been a uh, companion of Peter, who would get on one of those missionary trips with him, uh, going and planting <laughs> churches with Peter. And then, of course, Luke, we know by name from Acts as well. Of course, Luke also wrote uh, Acts as well as the gospel that bears his name. Likely a physician, as we read last week, a travel companion of Paul. And he's mentioned several times in the book of Acts as well. And then John, I don't remember if we talked about this last week or not, but John, of course, identifies himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. And uh, we'll talk about John a little bit more when we get to that book. But we're going to start this morning with Matthew. Matthew is the first gospel. If you're reading your Bible kind of from the back. It's the, one of the longer ones. Matthew and Luke are both uh, significantly longer than Mark and Luke. I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke are both significantly longer than Mark and John. And Matthew is written by the, this man, Matthew or Levi, who is a Galilean Jew, just a Jew from the region of Galilee, obviously became a Christian and a disciple of Christ. His gospel follows a roughly chronological account. And uh, we'll see that's kind of in contrast to Luke a little bit and John, who take a more thematic, uh, kind of a different approach. But it's likely largely chronological. It, it starts at the beginning. In fact, when he opens his gospel, he ties Jesus back to the very, very, very beginning. You might notice that the first whole column of Matthew in your Bible is nothing but generations of individuals leading to Jesus. And uh, because of not only that introduction, but a couple different things throughout Matthew's gospel, we we believe that he seems to be writing with the Jewish audience in mind, that he uh, writes kind of with that knowledge of the law, with those knowledge of the old scriptures. He writes to an audience who would care about what this title, the Messiah, means. Right? If you're a Gentile or if you're just not familiar with the Jewish uh, writings of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, you're not going to know what this name Messiah means. But Matthew talks about the Messiah. He talks about the anointed one of God, the one who would come and establish a kingdom. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. We see then Matthew specifically that the authority of Jesus is rooted not only in his miracles, in his miraculous works, but also in his fulfillment of prophecy. And again, that's another reason we think it was heavily uh, authored or geared towards the Jewish audience, because there's this great weight in the authority of Jesus coming from being rooted in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. 
We'll dive in. This is just kind of an overview. We'll dive into some specifics here in just a moment. But it's directed at a Jewish audience, but it's also a pretty foundational instruction on just being a disciple of Jesus. You can get there uh, from any of the Gospels, but his follows you a very good layout of, you know, this is who Jesus was, this is what he did, and this is why you should follow him. And so it's not exclusive. You don't have to be a Jew to read Matthew, but we can see from some of the details that it seems geared towards that audience. Matthew also gives us an emphasis of being a people on a mission. Um, we, we see in Matthew this, really, the, the conflict between the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the so-called religious people of the day, versus the people that Jesus calls to be active, to be doing things, to be working, and to be, uh, for their faith to be lived out. And so Matthew really, really emphasizes the idea of the church on a mission and then carrying out this idea of the mission of God. So questions before we dive into uh, some of the specifics from the Gospel of Matthew? All right. So we got the outline here. First couple chapters, obviously the birth narrative of Jesus, Jesus' is sort of arrival into the world. He comes in chapter 3 preparing the messianic kingdom, and, and 3 and 4 cover the, the announcement of the coming of that kingdom. 5 through 7, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, which just details kingdom life for his disciples. Uh, chapter 8 and 9 are the, the power of the kingdom as demonstrated. And then in 10, he sends them out, and he sends them out as holy messengers about the kingdom. And then we see in 11 and 12, some opposition emerges. Uh, chapter 13, uh, another great teaching on the parable. And if you're looking at this, you might be able to notice this. Like, I don't know if you can tell or not, but there's a couple lines that are hot, that are bolded, kind of highlighted a little bit. So something else that we'll see when we get into this is that there's, there's five times in Matthew that Jesus sits and teaches for an extended period of time. And so the gospel is kind of uh, oriented around those big five teachings. Now, obviously, we know Jesus taught daily all over the place, everywhere he went for the history of ministry. But there's five uh, really accounts of Jesus' teaching that seem to be uh, long, in-depth, that are sort of the focus of the book of Matthew. Now, I don't know how many times Jesus gave these or how many different ways or to different audiences, but those are kind of the focus in Matthew's gospel. And so uh, one of them is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, right? What we talked about a, a few months ago, probably one of the most famous, uh, singular sermons ever given. Uh, another one is where Jesus sends them out in Matthew 10. He sends out sort of messengers or emissaries for his kingdom. And then, of course, uh, the king, he reveals the kingdom through parables. In Matthew 15, that's when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom through parables. And the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And we'll get into this, some specifics of that as well. Then 14 through 16, he starts talking about you know, what his identity as the Messiah, as the anointed one, means. And over the next couple chapters, he talks about the, the suffering that he must endure. Around 16 and 17 is one of the times Jesus predicts his own death. Uh, chapter 18, he talks about the, the community, the kinds of people that he is calling to follow him. And what the, he begins talking about what the church is going to look like. It's from this section that we see where, of course, he tells Peter on this rock, I will build my church. He tells them that uh, you know, if you have a conflict with one another, this is how you should do it. We would know those passages from uh, that section. And then from 19 onwards, he begins moving towards Jerusalem. So Jesus preached three years. We know this because he celebrated Passover three times. 
uh, in the middle of the third year when he goes to celebrate the Passover, he, he makes his way to Jerusalem. And in this, in both Matthew and Luke's account, as Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem for that third and final Passover, there is a serious air of finality to Jesus' ministry. Now, obviously, we know we called it his final Passover because we know what happens. But even in his teaching, the, the tone of his teaching begins to change. What he, what he talks about, what he emphasizes begins to change. And, and we know this because, again, from, from Matthew 19 to about Matthew 25, his, his teaching concerns things like the end times. That, that's where Jesus says, you know, you see the temple, not a, you know, one, every stone will be torn down before uh, this generation passes away. That great uh, prophecy about the, the white throne judgment in Matthew 25. And so obviously... The crucifixion, chapter 26, 27, the resurrection, and the Great Commission, chapter 28. But that last uh, set of teaching there from 19 to 25, Jesus begins talking about kind of what, what life is going to look like after him. And so there's this air of finality as Jesus leads his disciples uh, one last time, making their way towards Jerusalem. So, as we mentioned, three big things that I want us to talk about today about Matthew's gospel. And that is, number one, Jesus as this new Moses. And we'll see as we start talking about these themes, they're pretty closely connected. But it, it goes back to that idea that we talked about, of, of Matthew kind of gearing his writing toward a Jewish audience and of, of bridging the gap from the, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, the prophets, and Jesus being the latest in, in a line of people who spoke for God. And again, we, we know this because we have the Bible, we have it in you know, modern bound form. But as we've talked about before, the Jews in their synagogues and their temples, they only would have had, you know, maybe the scrolls of Isaiah, or the scrolls of Ezekiel, or the scrolls of the kings, or the, and they certainly knew the law. But even the, the prophets and all of this, it wasn't as widely available as it is now, but they had to learn it. They had to learn it. So all of the Jewish people knew the scriptures that we would call the Old Testament. And so Matthew very intentionally presents Jesus as the, the latest thing God is doing. And again, we, we see this in the Bible, in the books that we've been studying. Every time a prophet comes from God, there's always this sign that accompanies that what they're saying is true. right? Either they're revealing something in a miraculous way, and sometimes they're doing miraculous works. Like, of course, Moses and part of the Red Sea. I mean, we, we could count endlessly the things Moses did that were miraculous. But Elijah called down fire from God. He, he could do things that were clearly empowered by God. And then other people, the later prophets, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah... They predicted things. They foretold things. They said God is going to do this, this, and this. But what happened? It came true. And that's how they knew that these people spoke from a true authority of God. Well, Matthew looks specifically at all of the things Jesus does that mirror all of these great prophets of Israel from times past. And this is very intentional. Jesus did that line we read from the book of John, right? Jesus did many, many things, and if we wrote all of them down, they could not be accounted in this book. And so we'll see that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of select things because they have a purpose and kind of a, uh, an inspired purpose in mind and a way that they portray Jesus that is very important. And Matthew takes this line of, number one, Jesus as the new Moses. What do we mean by that? Well, um, for example, certain events in his life happen similarly as the new Moses. And we'll dive into uh, all three of these in the next few slides, and that will be the bulk of our class today. But the big thing, Jesus is the new Moses as we see by his teachings and his life, the way things unfold. Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. This was really the, the focus of our, our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. We began back in, 
I think June, July, and August, we, we preached from the Sermon on the Mount. And something we talked about when we started that series is that that line in Matthew 4, 17, it says, Jesus began to go around preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, everyone goes, what do you mean? <laughs> well, what kingdom of heaven? You know, the pearly gates, the end of the world, what are you talking about? We need to go conquer people, we get our swords. And so Jesus begins talking at great length about what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Well, in Matthew, and specifically in the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus declare the, the restoration of God's people in this new kingdom that Jesus is establishing. And of course, he talks about it in ways like, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom cannot be seen, but my kingdom is among you or within you. And so we'll talk about what that means as well. And then lastly, again, these are all pretty tied together, but the identity of God's people, the identity of kingdom people. Because if Jesus is the latest in sort of the line of prophets and the line of leaders of God's people, well, you might remember when we finished our study of the Old Testament, we talked about that major, major event of the exile. The exile had scattered the Jewish people everywhere. And they had kind of come back, but really from, from that point on in history, Jewish people are kind of more outside of Israel than they are actually in Israel. And so when Jesus comes to this, this area and he begins preaching about the kingdom, and he begins preaching about who God's people are, naturally the question gets asked, well, hold on, who exactly is God's people? And what's radical about Jesus versus maybe some of the prophets of old, this is, of course, we know. Jesus doesn't say it's, it's who... Go ahead. The number three, the, the identity of God. Is that talked about after the church began? Yes. Or before? I mean, that's what he's getting. That's what he's going to be getting at. But yes, he he kind of is. You know, I, I believe if I can't remember the line, but he says, you know, the, I think the Hebrews author says the, the the will of the testator was not executed until his death, and so we know he these teachings apply to kind of the point going forward from his death. He's talking about a change that is going to come. Yes. Um, so that's a good point. The the church as we know it obviously didn't start till after Jesus's death. But Jesus begins telling about you know, what God's people look like. And he begins laying the foundation with these ideas that to be, a God, to be a person of God is no longer to be a Levite or a Benjamite or a Gideonite or to be uh, an Israelite or a, Jew, a Judean. It's not to be born of the right tribe, but the people of God act a certain way. The people of God look a certain way. The people of God conduct themselves. And so he talks uh, extensively about the identity of really kingdom people. Other, there's a good comment. Any other questions so far? Like I said, we'll dive into each of what we mean by this over the next uh, 25, 30 minutes or so. But all right. Like I've told you guys before, I have a tendency. I, in theory, I welcome comments and feedback, but I have a tendency to never pause or take a breath. So you might just have to interrupt me. So, what do we mean by Jesus as the new Moses? Well, now we get to dive into the text a little bit. Someone read for us Matthew 2, verse 13 and 14, please. We read verse 15 as well. I meant to. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. 
Thank you. So, we kind of know the story of Jesus. We're getting around to that time of year. If you don't know it, you're about to hear all about it, I'm sure. But we know that Jesus, he was, he was born. He was, we have the three wise men. We have all the whole birth narrative thing. But it says when he was born, his, his mother and his parents, they had to flee to Egypt because Herod was seeking to kill all of the children. And this is because of a prophecy that scared Herod. And so he, he tries to preempt this prophecy because he hears about a king who is coming. And so he, he orders what's called the, the massacre of the innocents or the slaughtering of the, all the young male children in Bethlehem. And so it's Jesus' parents have to flee and run to Egypt. And uh, Matthew quotes this prophecy, Out of Egypt I have called my son. It's from Hosea 11.1. 1. But Hosea is obviously, because Hosea... Uh, hadn't known about Jesus yet is intentionally he's speaking to people about Moses and about the people and you know the, the the Israelites were called sons and daughters of God and well they were called out of Egypt and we've we've talked about how that Exodus it, it's an underlying thread of the history it's a great event in the history of God's people that, that resonates with them all throughout the rest of their history well. Matthew says Hosea was actually also, he was looking backwards, speaking about the Exodus, but he was also looking forward to this event where it says, out of the exile, really, out of this idea of exile, I have called my son. And so just as Moses, if you know the story of Moses, Moses, of course, is, is not to put him in a basket and send him up the river, and she couldn't raise him. Why? Well, because much like now, there was that, that threat of the Pharaoh, right, to kill all the male children. This Pharaoh was trying to oppress the people. He said, they're getting too large. And so his mother has to put him in the little basket and send him up the river. And, of course, it's a, a woman in the house of Pharaoh who finds Moses in the basket and draws him out of the water. But, of course, that's a, a story for another time. But we see right here from the beginning, it mirrors that flight to Egypt. Uh, in chapter 4, if we look at Jesus in chapter 4, we see that Jesus goes into the desert. Someone read for us chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. So he goes into the wilderness. What happened to the people of God after they left Egypt? They wandered. You didn't even know how long they were in the wilderness. For years. So again, Jesus fasted in the wilderness 40 days. It was a little more intentional. But just Jesus was in there 40 days and 40 nights. That Moses led the people into the wilderness for 40 years after uh, out of captivity. Jesus calls 12 disciples. Moses, of course, uh, the, leads the tribe of Israel. There's 12 tribes of Israel. And just as Moses gave the law, anyone remember how many books of the law there are? We were talking about when we started this series. Five. Five books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers in Deuteronomy referred to as the law. Those are the five books Moses wrote, um, sometimes called the Pentateuch. But in, in, in Jewish, uh, really in, in their study, you know, they know that Moses wrote the five books of the law. Those are the five books Moses wrote. Well, just as Moses wrote five books, you might remember me saying that Daniel wrote the five books of Psalms. That there was kind of that Jewish saying around at the time. Moses gave the people the five books of the law. David gave them the five books of song. And when we were studying the Psalms, we see, oh, look, Psalms is broken up into these little books, and they're sort of categorized. Anyway, Jesus gives five great teachings. In uh, Go ahead. I think God allows us to be tempted now. I mean, he could, he could just snap his fingers and things would be gone like a government problem right now. 
he can snap his finger and he'd be gone. But he wants to see how his people will stand up, too. Look at Jesus Christ in the wilderness for 40 days. Would we be able to do that? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. And it, it, it's after the 40 days. It's, uh, it's one thing to be tempted before the wilderness, right? But you catch me on 40 days of a hunger strike, I might be a little yeah. more easily caught off guard. Yeah. So that's funny. I was talking to somebody about that. Yeah, uh, man, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, probably, we talked about fasting from the Sermon on the Mount. And how I said the traditional Jewish fast was this idea that you didn't eat anything during the day, but you had one meal after sunset. And I said, typically, when we see a fast, like when it says the prophet, there's certain, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's somewhere a couple prophets fasted for like, what says months and months or even years. So well, how'd they do that? Well, a Jewish fast, you didn't eat anything during the day, you had one meal at night after the sun went down. I'm not sure, because someone else, I was talking to somebody about this when we talked, and they said, well, I man, it's Jesus. So Jesus very easily could have just had a, a full, no food, no water fast, right? So I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, the fact that he works miracles makes it a little trickier. <laughs> the things he can go with that food and water a little bit longer than he can if he wanted to. But I think at least in this because I think this story, and I'm going off on my opinion here a little bit, shows us really the, the humanity of Jesus. We see some stories emphasize his divinity. We see some stories emphasize his humanity. I'm going to suggest that it was a traditional Jewish fast of not eating during the day and only eating at night. Um, That's true. I believe that's Second uh, Timothy three sixteen. Is that all sufficiency? The other thing we need for reproof, correction, and so that's correct. Absolutely, it is all we need. Which is why sometimes when you look at you know, Matthew has some things that aren't in Luke. Luke has some things that aren't in Matthew. Uh, we believe in the inspired word, which means together we have all that we need. But, um, and so it leads to questions like this. Yeah, it's like well, uh, we don't know, but we know he was fasting and then he was tempted. Is that kind of? Okay. Um, Second Timothy two fifteen and sixteen. Yeah. So certainly we believe in the, the inspiration of the, the the word of God as it is given to us. So Jesus, like I said, the, out of Egypt I have called my son. The 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus called 12 disciples after the 12 tribes. And just as Moses gave the law, uh, and really, if, if you want to dive into a little bit more, Moses was given the law on a mountain. One of Jesus' most prominent teachings was the Sermon on the Mount. Very intentional uh, parallel there. But Jesus had kind of five great teachings in Matthew and that's what I was highlighting earlier. The Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7. Uh, the Sermon on Mission in chapter 10. The, the Parables in chapter 13. His teachings on the church in chapter 18. And then what's uh, sometimes called the Olivia Discourse or uh, the Little Apocalypse. 
but really just his sermon on the end times from Matthew 23 through 25. So just as Moses kind of was the, was the great teacher and the great writer and the great teacher for Israel, uh, Jesus obviously a great teacher in that same vein. We didn't have problems. We wouldn't have any strength. Running up and down the hill in life, if it's all downhill, we would wind up being a nothing. But we run uphill, it gives us strength. So we can take care of the things that the world brings against us. That's true. In a way. That's true. With God's Word. We get the power from God's Word to do that. Absolutely. And we get the power to run up that hill. So, uh, another big theme in Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the mission given to Israel as the people of God. Just a kind of a quick note, we talked about how, when we studied this passage, how the, the, the Jews did not like saying the name of God. Well, we see the kingdom of the phrase kingdom of God used in Luke. Matthew used the phrase kingdom of heaven. Why? Probably because Matthew was Jewish. Matthew avoids using the, the proper name for God as, as a Jew of his time would have. And so in the kingdom of heaven, it's what kicks off Jesus' ministry. It's what starts all this. And we see that the, the kingdom of heaven is announced by Jesus. It is displayed through Jesus' works. And I mean, we could go to countless passages for this. But he heals the sick, he gives sight to the blind, he calms the storms, he casts out demons. And why? Because Jesus is the one who is coming to restore God's people. And so again, I talk about this with people sometimes in a Bible study. I think Christians a lot of times think uh, the story of God's people begins in Acts, or it begins in Matthew. But really, we have the whole Bible for a reason. And Matthew's Gospel in particular does a good job of, of tying together this new thing that God is doing to the things he has done always through his people. And so Jesus calmed the storm, cast out demons, uh, restored people to sight. He did all this because he is the one who is bringing the restoration of God's people. And of course, as we see in his teachings, the restoration is not the physical healing, right? The restoration is the thing that he is going to do that is forgiveness of sins. And he will talk about how he is the one who can wash away sins. He is the one who has the power to forgive sins. We, that, that, again, that's kind of Matthew. Jesus heals a man and he says, you know, what is easier to say to a man? Get up and walk or your sins are forgiven. He says, I say to the man, get up and I heal so that you know I have authority when I say your sins are forgiven. For the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Someone read for us Matthew 19, 28. disciples of the 12 tribes, Jesus tells his disciples, you who have followed me, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes. But he says, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. In the new world, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. He begins, remember how I told you around 19 Jesus' tone begins to change? For the first several parts of his ministry, he speaks heavily about this life and how we need to live differently now and how we need to act now. But toward the end of his life, he begins saying, now listen, I'm going to leave. Not only am I going to leave, but at some point you're going to die. And guess what? When you die, there is a judgment that comes after 
is of great, great importance. And here's what that judgment is going to be like. Here's what the next life is going to be like. Here is why what we are doing now is tied to what will happen in the next life. And so he says, he will come to judge the world. He will sit on his glorious throne. This is where, again, Jesus, we, we talk a lot about Jesus as a continuation of what God has always done. Things like this are where Jesus begins to make it clear that, you know, there was Moses and there was Elijah, but that Jesus is on another level. Neither Moses nor Elijah ever claimed to judge the nations. They never said, I'm going to sit on a glorious throne at the right hand of God. This is, you know, Jesus talks about himself as the Son of Man, the Son of God. And so that's where he really begins to show them, I guess, the full breadth of his power and the full might of what is going to come. Because he begins to reveal this aspect of who he is to his disciples. Um, someone read for us Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to give his life a ransom for many. So this is really interesting. This is why... Um, at some point, I'm sure, over the next couple of years, we'll do an in-depth study of one of the Gospels. But just a little bit ago, Jesus says, Yep, at the end of time, I'm going to sit on a great throne at the right hand of God, and we're going to sit on a glorious throne, judging all the nations. But while I'm here, what I'm going to do is wash feet. Like, that's kind of an insane thing to say in one breath, is it not? Know someone who says, I want to be king of the world, and no, by the way, I want to go be a garbage man well before I do that. And in fact, I think, I think if I go be the best garbage collector or the best sewage ditch cleaner or the best ditch digger or the best floor scrubber, I think that's the way to be the king of the world. Anybody ever heard anybody trying to tell you that? That's what Jesus does. He says, yes, that he is both the king who will judge the world. While he is here, he has come to serve. And I, I read verse 28. I asked Billy to read verse 28 for us. Because he says, to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is where we see Jesus begin to speak about, well, you know, this kingdom that's at hand, Jesus, when is it coming? What is it going to look like? Is, is it coming? Are you, are you going to take the throne? Are we going to grab our swords and go into battle? You know, when is it announced? When is the battle cry going to be? And Jesus says, well, actually, it's going to be when I give my life as a ransom for many. And so, again, we see this kingdom language, but it's, it's just so different from what they're expecting. So many times in the scriptures, as we've kind of studied and picked up a little bit along the way, and, and hopefully we've highlighted and emphasized enough of this in the right manner. But we see the prophets talk about one who is going to come that's going to be a king like David, a warrior like David, a fighter like David. Really, they say he will be a, really the prophets say because he, he will be a man after God's own heart. But when, I, when they tell the, you know, this, this Jews in 100 BC or 100 AD or wherever, this, this time frame, and they tell this, this era of Jews that, well, there's going to be a king like David. They think, well, man, David slayed giants, right? David led us into a great kingdom. David conquered all of his enemies. But really what they mean is that it's going to be a man with a heart like David had. Because God said David was a king after his own heart. They expected this fierce warrior who would come and just cut the heads off of all the enemies and, and round all of the Jews back to Israel where they belong. And none of that happened. Because Jesus says, no, this is how I'm going to inaugurate my kingdom, by service. And in fact, by serving so much that I will, I have come. Because he doesn't just say, like, this is something I'm going to do. But verse 28 seems to tell us that he said, my purpose in being here, I came for this reason. I came so that not to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. 
And this is where I think, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, this is where my mind just begins to explode. Because it, if someone comes raising the dead and healing the sick and laying the, you know, trying to lame the wall, we're going to follow that guy. Right? Most, but if someone comes in doing miracles, you're going to at least follow this guy around to see what he's got going on, right? Like, I've got to see if this is legit. And if he starts giving you all these wise and incredible teachings, you might stick around a little while longer. But, okay, this, is, this guy really knows something. This is really somebody I want to sort of tag my coattails to. And then, just as he is starting to get power and fame and glory and prominence in the land, he says, oh, by the way, I'm about to die. You're like, What? You just said you were a king. How are you going to die if no one's... This doesn't make sense. And it's kind of in this frame of Jesus' ministry that we see over and over. He begins to tell them, like, you're listening, but you don't understand. You're hearing me, but you're not really understanding me. Yes, because the first time he tells them they're going to die, he says, that's not going to happen. You're not going to die. He says, yes, I'm going to die. And again, going back to this verse here, why? So he can give his life as a ransom for many. And I, I, every time we study this, I have to tell people that as Christians or if you grew up in the church, I think this is something that we know about Jesus that we just sort of like, yeah, of course. I mean, if I could tell you three things about Jesus, right? He born, he died, he rose again. And when we just take those, those facts of his life almost for granted without realizing that you imagine what it was like to be a follower of Jesus in that time and to see what he was doing and see him demonstrate like, you can calm storms and bring dead people back to life. How are you telling me someone on earth is going to kill you? That doesn't make any sense. You're going to be a king, and we're going to amass this great nation, have all this wealth and all this power, certainly. And Jesus keeps telling them, that's not what my kingdom is going to look like. My kingdom is not going to look the way the kingdom of the world look. My kingdom is not going to look like you kind of keep expecting me uh, to set it up. He says, no, 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 my kingdom will be inaugurated by my death. And so Matthew picks up these ideas of, of the storyline, the United Kingdom, and the identity of the people of Israel. But he really, really emphasizes to us that this, is, this has all been fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, someone, I'm just going to find it. because so Matthew 5, I believe it is, yeah, verse 17. Yeah, verse 17. After Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so not only is Jesus a continuation of this great thing that God has been doing for centuries among the people of Israel... He says Jesus is the culmination. Jesus is the climax of all those things. Jesus is what all of those things, what all of Jewish history, what all of God's covenants, whether it was Moses or Noah or Abraham or Elijah or Elisha, all of that has been leading us to Jesus. And so it is all fulfilled in him. It is all accomplished in him. And that's what it means for him to be king over his kingdom. And so Matthew takes the storyline of the old, really the Jesus takes the storylines of the Old Testament and the, the leaders and the laws and all the things God has done and says, that is going to be fulfilled in me. And once it is fulfilled in me, I am going forward. I am sending you out to do this new thing. Because that's how, again, if we just talk about this idea of kingdom, 
That's how Matthew's gospel ends, right? He says, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to deserve all that I can you. And so he says, my kingdom is actually going to be led by you because I am going away. And what is Jesus' kingdom going to be? It's going to be made up of disciples, not of Israel, not of Judea and Samaria, but he says, of all nations. And so really the, the mission of the kingdom is summed up there at the very last verse of the Gospel of Matthew. Go and make disciples of all nations. So I know we only have a few minutes left, but we'll talk at least a little bit about the people of God in Matthew, because I, I do want to emphasize this, and we'll, we'll probably have to pick back up to read some of these specifically. But what I did is I put up here some specific teachings that are in Matthew that are not in the other Gospels. And I did that because, just as we have been talking about, you know, they, there's this inspired picture of Jesus that has this specific purpose, and people ask all the time, well, why do we have four Gospels? Why not just one? Well, because we have four different pictures of Jesus for different audiences that tell us different aspects of his life. If I wanted to get to know you, should I just ask one person? I mean, think about that. E even those of you who are married, like your spouse probably knows a lot about you. But if I really want to know your whole life, I, I, <laughs> I joke with, uh, I'm going to say this, I joke with my spouse all the time. I was like, yeah, I know you pretty well, but you know, I was also around for about 20 years before we met. Which is a lot, at the age I am, is a lot of my life. Now, to some of you, you were like, well, the first 20 years of my life are nothing compared to the 60 years that came after. But if I wanted to know you, I'd probably want to know what you were like as a child. I want to know what you were like as a parent. I want to know what you were like as a spouse. I want to maybe know what you are like at your job. And so I would talk to different people, and they would all have this different perspective of you. Yes, the word is inspired and it's flawless and it's just as God made it, but it reveals these different aspects of who Jesus is. And there's a, a divinity in their union. And something that is really, really cool to me is if we take this material that is unique to Matthew, we can see what Jesus is trying to tell the Jews. We can see where he's like, okay, I, I, things start to make sense. And we'll look at one, just because, again, for the sake of time. I put an exclamation point up there next to Matthew 20. Let's look to Matthew 20 real quick. I'm not going to have the opportunity to read all of it. I'll tell you what, someone who would dare... Someone want to summarize for us the, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard? Jesus says essentially there were two laborers. That's why it's called the laborers in the vineyard. The first one he grabs and he kind of makes an agreement with them. You work for so long, I'll pay you this much. And he goes and finds somebody else that says the day is pretty much over. And he goes and he finds somebody else and he hires them. And he says, you go into the vineyard and I'll pay you this much. And notice in verse 8, when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now again, I want you to understand, there were two groups of people. One, he made an agreement at the beginning of the day, that said, I'm going to pay you this if you work this. One, he made an agreement with about the day was halfway through. And he said, I'm going to pay you this. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received the denarius. Now when those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, and they start complaining, like, well, we worked this long, and you know, we did all this. And Jesus says, well, hold on. I, I, the master says, I made an agreement with you. I'm paying you what I agreed you to. 
This is about the Jews and the people who will be Christians. Because when the Jews get to eternity, or when the Jews start having to welcome in the Gentiles, they're saying, whoa, 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 hold on. From birth, I had to do some very uncomfortable things to be Jewish. From birth, I've had to keep the law and know the law and tithe and give and do all of these things. And now you're telling me all these people got to do is just, why do they have to live differently than we do? And the point of this parable is that God made a promise to you. He's going to keep that promise. God is making a new promise, but he wants them to get along. So we'll talk about this more next week. I know we're out of time. But we'll pick back up this idea on uh, the parables of the people in the kingdom Jesus is inaugurating. Also true. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you guys. About to die. Huh? I said, y'all are hella.